Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself this interesting email that i got was 100 percent about a woman who could not trust her husband she had been duped about 15 years prior to and she just didn't know how she could trust herself again and therefore it was impeding her ability to trust him But the deal was, 15 years ago, he had told her he was in good recovery, and he was not. And as a result of that, she now watched him. He appeared to be in good recovery. And she said, how will I ever know? How will I ever know if that man is in recovery? Well, here's what I believe. I know polygraph tests are not 100% accurate, but I do believe that he is working a recovery program that appears to be honest. So now she has to assess the situation. She can do that a variety of ways. You know, what are his recovery tools? Well, he's going to meetings. He's got a sponsor. He's actually hosting get-togethers with the fellowship. Um, He's talking to people. He doesn't want to be a sponsor yet because he still believes he can gain so much more from the program before he can give back. He is not going to a CSAT, but he does have a CSAT coach. So he's getting good information about sexual addiction. Now, Patrick Carnes says a sex addict 
needs to be able to understand 100% about his addiction. All right, what does that mean? That means that he should be reading all sorts of information on what sexual addiction is. He needs to know the brain science of sexual addiction. And wow, that can be really tough because a lot of people don't enjoy reading. Well, then listen to it on Audible or get an audio book. But if you don't like to read, you still are responsible for learning about your sexual addiction. And he needs to be praying, meditating, or journaling. He needs to be doing the steps, not the 12 steps, although, yes, that's very helpful for every man's battle. Or um, Jason Springer's um, unwanted. I mean, there are lots of different ways to work on your sexual addiction. But the key word is work. Now, let's talk about her. If he's doing all those things and he's working on their relational issues, she really should have him polygraphed. But if they don't have a polygrapher close to them, then she's got to depend on herself. And that means she has to trust what her head says, her intellect, what her heart feels, her emotions, and what her intuition is telling her. Right now, it sounds like her intuition is saying, the jury's still out. You can't be sure. You need more time. And you know what? An addict requires at least three to five years to get healthy, and that's the same for a partner, especially if she's been duped twice. So I would ask this woman, what does your head say? Intellectually, what does your brain say about your husband? Well, I'm going to empathize and put myself in her place. And I bet her head is saying, yes, he looks like he's working a program and he looked like he was before. And therefore, I cannot totally trust him. My intellect says, I need more time. What does your heart say? I bet you her heart says, I want to believe him. I want to have faith in him. And yet I just don't know. I am so scared based on our past history. I don't know if I truly can believe him. Okay. What does your intuition say? What does that knowing inside of you say? Well, I would suspect she might say something like, my gut says that he can't be trusted. He lied to me before, and even if he's in good recovery, I cannot trust that. Okay. You know, here's what I would say to you. As a woman who loves a man who's a sex addict, who duped you before for 15 years, it's okay not to trust him. But you're still with him, and therefore, just keep looking for the positive signs that says he is. And here's the hard part. I want you to detach from the outcome. I mean, you're already guarded. You're um, 
force field is up. So trust that force field and let it know. I mean, tell yourself it's going to protect you. And the good news is that you do have intuition that says, I still need to be protected. There's nothing wrong with that. And when you detach from the outcome, here's that other part. You have to live for yourself and find enjoyment in other ways and serenity and calm and and that inner knowing that you're going to be okay. Now, for my partners, I have this new um, post-traumatic growth online course. And it allows you to assess where you're at in terms of your restoration of self. This woman doesn't trust the relationship, but she can trust herself. And so I give all sorts of tips and tools as to how to do that because I know it's very difficult. There is no doubt in my mind after studying this work, training clinicians and coaches, and working with sex addicts for many, many, many years that this is the worst betrayal in the world. And therefore, you take all the time you need to trust him, but in the meantime, it is up to you to have a quality life. And when you have a quality life, that means you've got friends, you've got support, you have things that will make you healthy, happy, and whole. Even while the jury is still out about him. And that's the good news. It's that serenity prayer that you can control something and that control is you. So I want you to know that you absolutely can control what's going on in your life by increasing your self-care, your nurturance, your self-love, and find other ways to matter in this world. Find other opportunities to make a difference. Find other things to do that are not sex-addicted or partner betrayal-related. Come on now. This is up to you to live a life that you desire. And you know I say it at the end of every show. There will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be you, to be yourself. And that requires post-traumatic growth. So go to my website, www sex help with Carol the coach and look for that partner course on post-traumatic growth and if you're an addict listening to this show you buy her that course and you tell her she's strong and she's capable and she's competent and she needs to be reminded of that you can buy it for her um I know it sounds like I'm selling something, but I actually am. I don't think partners get enough encouragement to know their own strength and resiliency. Now, talk about resiliency. Oh, my goodness. I absolutely admire this woman so much. She's in her 20s, and her father was a sex addict, and his mistress, told herself 
Can you imagine being an adolescent and having a mistress call you up or contact you or email you or text you and say, your dad's a sex addict and he's seen me. So we're going to be talking to her. We're going to be interviewing Alex, this young woman who was devastated by her father's secret life. Um, It just put her smack dab in the middle of her mother, her father, and her family. And, you know, this is a story of an adult daughter of a sex addict figuring out how to be a child again. And more importantly, to love her father regardless of the intimate, destructive decisions he had made in his life. And so she's going to talk about how she found post-traumatic growth. She's going to tell you the stories. And she is really going to do her best to give some hope, strength, and recovery for any family member, any sibling, any child, any, um, any person who loves an addict who discovers that he or she is an addict. Her story was so um, mesmerizing as well as inspirational, I asked her to be on the show. So Alex is going to be talking about her father's secret life and how she found out. And that's through resiliency. When you can talk about something, we all know that in addiction, in addiction, People typically don't talk, they don't trust, and they don't feel. And so Alex is obviously talking about it. She wants to help others, and she knows she shouldn't carry the shame. That's what's so important. Um, And when you talk about things and you find safe, supportive people to talk to, you begin to heal. So I am so happy to have her on the show. Um, I don't have many adult children that come on and talk about this kind of stuff. So Alex, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, obviously you have been through so much, but your strength in telling the story really comes through. I, I admire you already. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's definitely something that I wish I could share more, but, uh, you know, the nature of the story and my position in the relationship with my father is definitely different than most. Absolutely. So tell me, did you see any signs early about your dad's sex addiction or were you totally blindsided? Um. Well, I wouldn't say I was blindsided, but I definitely think in my early formative years, I didn't see signs. I saw um, the signs I saw really were a lot of just anger. And, you know, I wouldn't say my dad was really supportive and loving and present as a parent. So I think that, and I had a really good relationship with him, but he also was very quick to blow up and get angry about things. And at the time, I didn't know what was behind all of that. And so, um, 
I definitely didn't see it when I was younger, but then when I was in high school, I started seeing signs that my dad was kind of pulling away from my mom and our family and being very secretive and weird about things. And I actually, my, my earliest memory of, of kind of confirming that something was off um, was just him leaving his wedding ring at home a lot and him always making excuses for why he left it so prominently uh, by my parents' bed. And Mm -hmm. so that was kind of a weird first sign for me. Uh, And then, and then I think about 16 years old, I was on our home computer back when that was a more of a thing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I was surfing just kind of the history of the computer. I don't know why I was looking into it. But I noticed that my dad was on, um, or somebody at least, was on some dating websites on our computer. And they weren't like regular dating websites. Uh, It seemed to be a little more intense than that. And uh, I confronted my dad about it and told my mom about it and was really upset with the situation. But nothing really seemed to come of that. So that was probably some of my earliest memories of something being weird. All right, so you did have some signs, but as most adolescents, you were confused and wondered what it meant. And just you saying right there that, you know, you had gone to your mother and shared that, it's almost as if you're intimating that you didn't see any action as a result. And that had to be confusing, too. Yeah, yeah, that definitely was confusing because I was a pretty strong individual then as well and I was pretty adamant with my mom I was very protective of her um, and cared a lot for her and so I was adamant that she changed the locks on her house and put his stuff on the front lawn I just thought that it was pretty cut and dry that something was really wrong and he was cheating on her in some way I didn't realize the extent of it at the time but even just the small things I found I felt like was enough reason to um take serious action and she didn't she uh I think my mom's I I have a really close relationship with my mom and I love her a lot but she's also been blinded by how much I think she's always loved my dad and so I think that was a hard pill for her to swallow at the time well absolutely and you referenced that you were a strong individual and did I understand you to say that you were actually giving your mother some instructions as to what you thought she should do, change the locks, <laughs> put his stuff out in the front yard? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, so you became you became an adult early, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. And I think that that kind of played into that's something that I've definitely looked into over these years as things progress is just kind of the parent aspect of my relationship with my parents. In some ways, I think I played surrogate spouse to both of them, but in a lot of ways I was being a parent, even though my parents were more than capable of being a parent, but I think they were really distracted in this narrative that was taking place um, secretively in our house, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, understandably, and that happens to so many families, I'm sure as our listening audience is hearing your stories, there's a little part of what you're saying that they can resonate with no matter what has transpired in their lives. It's that that need to 
keep things secret, keep it under the rug, try to figure it out before it explodes. And um, it sounds like your mother was somewhat scared to make a move. I mean, really, partners so oftentimes aren't quite sure what they should do, and then they're not sure how they should do it. And so as an adolescent, it was pretty cut and dry for you um, and maybe more complicated for her. Right. Yeah, when you're married to somebody for as long as she was at the time, I want to say it was, oh, gosh, I can't even remember. Maybe they were 17, 18 years into marriage at that point. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of history there, and that's not something that is easily thrown away, especially for somebody that is a little more codependent. And uh, I just think that that's a, it's a hard scenario for sure. But and I think in my heart of hearts, it was even hard for me, even though I, I have a tough exterior. I did, I have always had a really good relationship with my dad, even at my angriest points with him. I still loved him a lot. And so I think that, I think that if ultimately she would have thrown him out of the house, that that would have been a hard situation for all of us all around. But at the time that, that made the most sense in my mind as it pertained to his actions. Mm-hmm. And so you said, obviously, that you saw the dating websites at 16. And then what was the next major sign? Um, You know, at that point, I kind of, uh, there was a few other little incidents here and there after that where my parents were kind of uh, living apart in the house. So my mom didn't kick him out, but they lived in different bedrooms. And I remember really distinctly this one time that my dad and I went out to dinner. And uh, I think it was for his birthday, maybe a year or two after this incident happened. And I remember him saying, asking me if he and my mom would get a divorce if I would um and he would move in with another woman if I would ever come see him or like spend holidays with him and it was a very odd question considering that topic had never been discussed in my house before that time um especially not between me and my father and I said no I said you know I come with my mom I'm a package deal so if you divorce her you divorce me and at that point I was almost 18 so it wasn't like there was any legal custody that he could take over me to force me to come see him or anything. And so I think that was a big deciding factor at that point for his actions and for maybe even hiding it more, but making it, making it okay with my mom so that he wouldn't lose me. Yeah. Well, you were very assertive back then. I mean, I do (laughs) run into more and more kids that, that make it very clear that if this behavior doesn't stop, we're not going to have anything to do with you, mom or dad. And you obviously said, we're a package deal. If you divorce mom, you divorce me. Was that ever a hard decision for you in terms of giving him that boundary? It was, but I think I was kind of, I think that was also my poker face in a way. Like I knew my dad well enough to know that if I was at stake and our relationship was at stake, that he wouldn't leave and he wouldn't do anything drastic enough to lose me. I think that was, 
that was something that I was really aware of because of how close we always were. And so I think I was playing with fire a little bit and just throwing my cards out on the table and saying, you know, it's, it's me or it's a, this other life that you want to live. Okay, so you were actually playing chess with your dad. Not only were you giving him a boundary, <laughs> but deep down inside, you knew that he loved you enough that it, it heightened the stakes, if you will, and he yeah. really couldn't be impulsive. He'd have to make a clear, hard decision. Yeah, I think so, at least for, at least for a while, yeah. Okay, and so... Um, those were the other signs you saw as well as anger. And, you know, so oftentimes when we're dealing with sexual addiction, addicts actually hate themselves. There is such a loathing for what they're doing and they can't stop. And they're caught up in that dance of meeting their own individual needs and wanting to have a healthy, loving family. And their guilt and their shame gets to them. And I imagine that fed into his anger. Yeah, I definitely think so looking back on it now. At the time, I thought he was angry because of our financial situation and just, like, always feeling like we weren't stable in the money area. And so I thought that it always had to do with that. But looking back now and knowing what I know, I there was a lot more going on underneath the surface that was causing his anger, and little everyday things would trigger that. Okay, so then you graduated from high school, and you went Mm -hmm. off to college? Yes, I did. And then another bombshell hit. Tell us about your story. Yeah, so, you know, fast forward, I went to college. I kind of, I wouldn't say I knew a lot about what was going on at my parents' house during my college years. I was definitely still worried about my mom just because, of my dad's anger and I would check in on her and everything, but I was pretty disconnected during those years. And after college, um, and I think about, uh, 2017 or actually 2016 in 2016, I, um, started to get texts and emails from a person that I'd never met before. And it was a woman And she would email me and text me on different phone numbers with different emails, basically telling me that my father had been cheating on my mom. And she knew a lot of my family information, just information that an average person would not know. And she would relay that information to me in those texts and emails, along with new information that I'd never heard before about how my dad was a liar and a cheater and he um, wasn't faithful to my mom and that our whole family was fake and phony on the outside, uh, but full of lies on the inside. And in reality, that's true because I had no idea this was going on, but um, yeah, so I was getting those texts and emails from what I know now to be somebody that my dad had a relationship with and, for about a year, uh, I would block the emails, I'd block the phone numbers, and I would say every day, every other day, every couple of days, 
she was sending me some sort of message and it was it was almost like cyber digital bullying in a way. Well, absolutely. And so explain to me how did she initially get your information? I honestly have no idea. Uh from okay. I'm I am pretty public on the internet and so I believe she found my information online just through doing some Google searches. And especially at the time, I think my information was more public because it was right after college and I had a lot of resumes out there with my phone number and my email address on them. And so I believe that she found that information online. Okay, so you were 100% blindsided initially and she gave you all this information and there was a very wise part of you that said, this isn't somebody making it up. She's got too much information about my family and myself. And so what did you do with that? Yeah, it was definitely emotionally taxing every time I would get one of these texts or emails because I was so confused by it. And initially, I called my mom and I said, you know, what is happening? Is this true? Why is this person messaging me? And it just so happened that she was also messaging my mom at the time. And so though my mom did not know who this woman was, she was also getting these messages. And my parents were, from what I understand now, my mom was aware that my dad had an issue at that time, but they were not open and forthright about that issue with me yet. And so I would ask my mom, I would ask my dad, like, who is this woman? Why is she saying these things? And nothing was being confirmed. They, even though I was an adult at this point, I, they would not confirm anything for me. They, you know, eventually I would, I was begging them like, you know, can we call the cops? Can we like take some kind of legal action? And they eventually looked into it more and found out there wasn't much they could do, but it just felt like a very confusing time for me because I knew something was really wrong in my family and this outside person was telling me so and confirming that for me but I was getting no confirmation from the people that you know loved me the most supposedly and and I it just was very it was a very weird situation well and it had to be really rough for them because truly I think most adults most parents are not sure how much to divulge and how much to say and how much to confirm. I would suspect that your mother was very afraid as to how that would affect your relationship with your father. And yet the truth of the matter was your relationship was already affected with, by your, you know, all the information that you were getting. Um, Do you have siblings, Alex? Yes, I have three older siblings. They are all from my mom's first marriage, though, and so and they're a lot older. Uh, so I'm my dad's only child, and so I, I kind of was weathering this by myself because my older siblings aren't really connected to him, and um, he really only raised one of my older siblings. The rest of them were. Um, a lot older when he entered the picture. So it's definitely a different relationship he has with them than with me. And so I was, I was pretty much directly affected by this and almost dealt with it as like an only child. 
Well, absolutely. And so I could see where it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have nearly the meaning to them as it did to you, although certainly they would experience your mother's betrayal because they love your mother and that they are a part of your mother. And so that had to be very, very tough. Tell me how you handled your mixed feelings towards your father. <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. I handled them in a mixed way. <laughs> uh, okay. I think <laughs> I, I would say the majority of the time I handled it with a lot of anger and I really didn't see my dad much that year uh, by my own desire to not see him. And anytime I did see him, I, you know, wasn't happy with him. And anything, he, a little thing he said or did, I was really set off by it. And I was constantly focused on the fact that this lady was messaging me and I didn't really have answers. And so it was hard to have any semblance of a relationship with him. Uh, I was just frustrated, but I also like wasn't fully able to grieve or, or deal with what was happening because I didn't know what was happening to its fullest extent. And, and so I know that you won't possibly ever be able to know what you would have done if you had been the adult. But I keep hearing you say that it, you needed some true and factual information to make sense of all this. So do you believe that if your situation were different and you were the parent, you would give your daughter some of the facts and explain what was going on? Yeah, and I think that that really is a fine line. Uh, I have talked to a lot of daughters of sex addicts since, knowing what I know. And I tell them, I think just like a lot of, you know, that I know that you say to a lot of partners is just that once you know everything, you know everything. Like that you can't unknow something. And so I think especially with a father-daughter relationship or a father-son relationship, there are boundaries that still need to be there. I think I would have told my child more upfront than my parents were trying to confirm to me uh, or not confirm to me just so that I could have really understood from their lips. Since another outside person was already telling me these things, I just would have really liked to know the truth from them. But I do think more now than then that it is good for me not to know everything because that really does taint my view and my relationship with my father. And it puts me in a place that no child should be in, which is honestly the sexual or intimate relationship of my parents or that sexual and intimate relationship that my dad had with people outside of his marriage relationship. And so that's not something a child should really completely know or understand. And there's a lot of details that I wish I could unknow at this point. But at the time, I was just craving any kind of confirmation. Well, and I get that totally. And it is, it's a very gray area. And it depends on the mental health of the children and their ability to take in information. And of course, how they've been exposed to the information to, be, to begin with. So it's not a cut and dry issue. I want our listening audience to know that. But it does sound like you're very wise and you 
you know, you were part of the first point of entry, although your mother was too, but you didn't know that initially. And this woman sounds so very sick. I mean, it sounds like she was trying to break up your family. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I think so. uh Uh-huh. You could not do anything legally. You called it cyberbullying. Yeah, to uh-huh. my knowledge, no. But again, I don't know, honestly. I Yeah, I'm not sure if there's more action that we could have taken. Well, I get that too. And that would be something that I would instruct our listening audience to do is to find out what you might be able to do when people in the family are being terrorized by somebody who is unhappy and who is being a terrorist, if you will. So, okay. Um, How are you and your father now? Well, Is your family still together? (laughs) Yes. My family is still together, at least for the time being. And uh, we are in a lot better place now. It's been about three years since my mom finally did sit me down and confirm things to me and just kind of say really what I had been asking her to say for about a year. And um, that was one of the hardest days of my life, but it really was ground zero for us to begin healing as a family. Um, And really more than just a family, me individually, I think that's something uh, that I want all children of sex addicts to know is that you have to find healing and wholeness and recovery for yourself, regardless if your father or your mother is, is seeking that for themselves and getting the help they need. And so that was something that I did right away, even though my dad wasn't fully committed to recovery yet at the time, I jumped, I jumped in um, within a couple months of really knowing everything and I started going to uh, some support groups for other daughters of sex addicts. And I started having more conversations with my mom about all of that. And, you know, I started getting counseling uh, really regularly and just kind of diving into my own recovery. And so, <laughs> excuse me. And so, yeah, I, you know, we kind of, it's been a three-year process, and my dad did start fully going to um, sessions, uh, SA, and different men's groups for sex addiction, and um, my mom as well. And, yeah, three years later, I would say we're doing a lot better. Uh, I would say there is if you don't mind me telling, there is kind of one pivotal point, I think, for me that happened last year um, in our recovery that I think was the big turning factor in my relationship with my dad. Absolutely. Uh, Tell us what that was. Well, so one of the things is my, my dad and I had a really hard time just with an anger incident a little over a year ago. And after that situation happened, I kind of set up a boundary with him that um, in order for us to progress in our relationship and have a relationship at all, that I wanted to go to counseling with him, which we had never done in our lives. And so for a couple months, he fought me on that. 
and then decided that it was worth having a relationship with me. And so we went to counseling, uh, I want to say for about, I don't know, five or six months. And uh, during that helped our relationship a lot, talk about things that had never been spoken about before and having a third party there to help guide that conversation and mediate it was a big deal. But really a major turning point for me was when I went to a retreat for daughters of uh, fathers with sex addiction, and uh, that was last summer. And I was actually at the retreat to help lead other girls, uh, younger girls, who also had sex addicts as fathers. But I had this moment where I could go away for a little bit and kind of do some of my own work on myself. And I really felt the need up to that point. I just hadn't noticed that even though my dad and I, our relationship had been progressing, that I was not, I was still angry. There were still things that would set me off um, and I would turn on him or I'd immediately want to just put up walls uh, when he would do the littlest thing because I still was harboring a lot of anger for what, for his actions and for what he had done over the years. And so I went away at this retreat and I did an empathy exercise. And basically what that meant is I journaled pages and pages and pages of me writing a letter to my dad as a little boy. And I took some photos to the retreat of him when he was younger and just wrote a letter to him at different stages in his life um, that I wasn't around for. And I just wrote a letter to each of the stages in his life and and just empathize with him. Uh, and that was something that, I mean, and I bawled and I'm, I'm not a crier, <laughs> but I cried a lot that day. And it was a huge turning point for me and how I viewed my dad and how I was able to really get to the other side of my anger. I could, I can, I can now approach my dad in a more empathetic way because I know his past hurt and his past trauma and what has brought him to this place. And even though he'd made the decisions he made, there was so much done to him uh, in his entire life that has, that really pushed him into these, these terrible places. And, and now I'm able to see that and to empathize with him as a human more than I was before. And I think that has really, taken our relationship in a completely different direction. So I would say from last summer till now is really our rebuilding period uh, these past six months. Well, absolutely. And so, again, empathy is so important. Um, you, you know, it is at the, the foundation of developing a healthy relationship. And so you took pictures of him as a little boy. And you wrote to his little boy, to to him as a little boy? Yes, to him as a little boy. I took pictures at different stages in his life. And so um, to him as a little boy, to him as the, around the age that he married my mom, which was, he was in his 20s at the time. And he took on, you know, three kids that weren't his own at the time. And so I wrote a letter to that, to him at that stage in his life. And then I wrote a letter to him at the stage in his life after he had me, his only child. So being a new dad. 
And so as you did that, you were able to understand some of the pain and the trauma that he had been through. And it softened some of the acting out, I would think, because you saw it as coming from wounding. We we call it in this field trauma reenactment. Um, but it sounds like it really helped you to see him in a different light. Yeah, it definitely did. It it gave me a new perspective on the situation because it, it kind of flipped the script from me looking at my dad as somebody who was out to get me or just to betray me. And it was all about, you know, he didn't love me enough. He didn't love my mom enough. He didn't love our family enough to not choose the things he chose to realizing that it in a lot of ways didn't have to do with us at all. Uh, It had to do with, you know, his upbringing and different trauma that he has faced throughout his life that was unresolved and wasn't anything he ever addressed or dealt with. And it, it just built up into the acting out that happened later in life. And so it really has flipped my perspective on who he is and, um, and been able is really created a space now where I feel like I can uh, try to rebuild a real relationship with my dad, um, an actual father-daughter relationship, probably more so than one we've ever had before. Well, and you referenced that it was difficult for him to find recovery initially. How's he doing right now in terms of his recovery from your standpoint? I think what's interesting about where he is in his recovery now is he's not going to as many groups as he did before, at least from my understanding. I kind of stay out of that more now, so I don't always know um, what he is and isn't doing. But I, what I've seen in his recovery lately has been pretty amazing because it's been more of a mentality switch. Uh, he was going through all of the steps and the actions and the and the have tos for a while, for a couple of years even. And, and I kept saying like, man, I just don't know that his heart's in it. I don't know that his mentality has switched. I feel like he's still operating like he always has operated and that any moment he could just stop going to those groups and he would be the same person. And I really saw over this past year a mentality switch of, of no matter if him working the programs or not, he is coming at it from a different heart stance that is just um, softer and more compassionate and more empathetic and uh, patient. Things that I wouldn't have, uh, descriptors I would have never said for my dad before. Wow. Well, that is what recovery is known to do, isn't it? That it can transform the person, make them more uh, empathetic, soften them, and give them a new safety net for their own vulnerability. So it sounds like he's on the road to some good, healthy recovery. Yeah, I I mean, I definitely think so. And I just hope that that continues and that's something that uh, that we can continue to do together too. And as a family, I see, I see that kind of being our next step of recovery is, is more family discussions and healing. 
Well, that's amazing. And obviously, you have a very good perspective. Um, you sound like a psychologist. Are, are you going to school to be a psychologist? <laughs> I am not. I know. I'm you not, don't have to give me any identifying information. <laughs> But I've I've done you know I've done hours of counseling and reading and <laughs> studying over these past couple of years, so you know I think I have a um, a fake degree in it. <laughs> well, I get that. Okay, a degree by experience, if nothing else. And so yeah. I'm going to ask you for our listening audience, because um, I. I hope there are some daughters that are listening, but more than likely it's sex addicts and it's partners. So I'd like for you to share with them um, some of the lessons that you've learned on this journey, if, if you will, and then what your needs are as you're in your 20s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I, you know, I think the one thing I would say, especially to parents, um, out there would be to pay attention to your kids. I know that if you are a partner of a sex addict or a sex addict or a recovering sex addict yourself, it's not, I mean, all you can do some days is just to take care of yourself and hold on to your marriage or relationship or semblance of a relationship. But uh, your kids are being affected no matter what age they are, no matter if they're adults and they don't live in your house anymore or they're five years old, they know that something's wrong, even if you think they don't. And so I would just, you know, really encourage parents to pay attention to their kids uh, and to try to have conversations with them about it to get them into counseling, to, to find groups in their area that will, would specialize in sex addiction. And I think it's also important. I, I didn't really go into this, but in my own experience, I went to a couple different counselors over the years. And the one missing piece I found with counselors initially was that they weren't, they didn't specialize in sex addiction. Uh, And so they didn't know how to approach that topic with me. It wasn't something that they really had language for or full understanding. And I even had a counselor tell me at one point that there's no such thing as a sex addiction. And so I would highly recommend for any parent that is putting their child in some sort of counseling that their counselor would specialize in that in some way, because I think that's a really important facet. It's, it's not something that all counselors really understand. But yeah, I would just, so I would just encourage parents to pay attention to their kids and in any last bit of strength that you have while you're trying to find recovery for yourself, um, get them into recovery as well. Well, you know, that is always the million-dollar question. Parents say, you know, we're dealing with discovery right now, and we're we're all shocked, and we don't think our kids know, and we don't want to involve them until we get healthy. And so there are some steps that parents can take to get healthy themselves, which usually involve, obviously, some good recovery, some support groups, and then um, the disclosure so that the truth is known between the two of them, and then they can decide how to pull the kids in because I'm a big believer that even if a child 
didn't have as much information as you did. Kids sense things. They know things. They hear things. They watch their parents spiral down that rabbit hole. And they, they need to know at least the basics. Mom and dad are having problems. Uh, dad has really hurt mom. We're going to get some help. We'll keep you posted. We may want you to get some help. Just initially, the very basics, and most importantly, that the children are safe. And I love that you said parents pay attention to your kids. And, you know, that can be tough when the adults are reeling from the discovery, and at the same time, it's essential for the child's well-being. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that also goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is, you know, being willing to share with your children what's going on without disclosing everything to them. And I also, in my own experience, you know, I I realized after the initial disclosure when my mom confirmed a lot of things for me that I was going to have to set up some boundaries with my parents, especially when it came to the sexual or intimate part of their relationship, even because that was something that was kind of triggering to me. So my parents had always been pretty touchy-feely and physical uh, my whole life. But after knowing and finding out about the things that I did, I I kind of had to say to them, like, hey, I need you to calm that down in front of me. And that's not something that I really want to see anymore. Um, my dad had always been very touchy-feely and huggy. And there was a long time that I couldn't hug him or have any physical contact with him because I just needed that space and time to heal. And so I think, you know, be sensitive to your kids um, physically because this sex addiction permeates so much more um, than a normal addiction, I think, in many ways, because it's bringing in a whole element of your body that most people don't think about. And so I think I had to kind of create some my own sexual independence boundaries uh, just just from even my parents and their relationship. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, you know, one of the things, one of the strengths, I was talking earlier on the show before you came on, uh, that post-traumatic growth means that you detach from, um, and this would be for a partner, that she detaches from the sex addict's recovery to a certain degree and continues to work on herself and figures out what is it she needs not only for support but to help her feel whole. And it really sounds like somehow, some way, you have individuated beautifully in knowing what you need. I mean, now you're you're a part of a support group for daughters. That's amazing. You've gone to a retreat. That's amazing. And I suspect I can hear in your heart that you're probably going to be available to daughters down the road to help them. Now, I don't know that to be true, but at least you've individuated. I mean, if dad did a full relapse, I believe you would still be healthy. You would be disappointed and devastated but it would not affect your sense of self. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope it wouldn't. Uh, I, I do feel a lot stronger now than I was a couple years ago. And, and that is, you know, I do want to be able to help daughters down the road in my whole life. And I already have 
And I, I think that that was something, something that will always be a part of my story and a part of who I am. Um, mm-hmm. Just even doing that on the side, I think that, you know, I always want to be available for any daughters out there that um, are dealing with a father who's a sex addict. And I will say my heart goes out especially to daughters that are in high school and that are still, that are still living in the house and know that their dad's a sex addict and dealing with that. That's not something that I was fully aware of when I was in high school. And I feel grateful for that because that, that is a really hard situation to be in. So if you're listening or you have a daughter that is old enough to know what's going on and is still living in the house, be extra sensitive to her. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the show sharing your story, your hope, strength, and recovery. And um, I just wish you the best success because I can feel it. I hear it. Um, You have a lot to offer people as well as you have a lot to offer yourself. Thank you, Carol, for having me on. It's been an honor, and I just really appreciate everything that you're doing for the sex addiction community. Oh, thank you so much. Make it a good one, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, obviously, Alex really has it together. She um, has been able to go go through this journey and come out stronger as a result. True resiliency, true post-traumatic growth. All right, so I will see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And I said it earlier, I'll say it again. There will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week.